Sermon on the Mount listened than Jesus did. That's because he was God, God in the flesh. And he was saying things in a way they had never seen before and that we haven't seen since. He explained truth like no one else had ever explained. But see, for many centuries before he came, you would also know if you were there that day on the mountain that there were religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and other groups, and they had twisted God's holy scripture over the generations for their own gain. And they had burdened God's people with distortions of God's law. God had enough. And so Jesus came to set God's law straight and then to model exactly how we should live and the kind of ethics we should have and to model for us everything about how to live life, the life that he wants us to live. And then on top of that, to die for us in our place for our sin and to rise from the dead and conquer death to offer us abundant life and eternal life. That's Jesus. And so because of that, God the Father made Jesus the king of all kings. The king of all kings. That's why we call him King Jesus. And he initiated his kingdom right there in his first coming. He initiated his kingdom. Now Jesus' kingdom will be fully realized at his second coming. Boy, we look forward to that, don't we? Amen? But until then, he's initiated his kingdom. And he has much to tell us how to live today, right now as kingdom citizens in his kingdom. As we live and as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Welcome to Community Grace. If you did not get a bulletin and would like one to have the sermon notes in it, to carry it, to follow along, the ushers are there. To, if you raise your hand, they'll give you one. It's a great thing. Thanks for doing that, guys. And open your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 17. And we pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we kicked off our brand new fall all all church, sermon and small group series. Uh, it's neat. The children's ministry are doing this as well. All the small groups. The youth ministry, I heard Sean did a fantastic job up there on Wednesday night, uh, kicking the Sermon on the Mount off. This is the most famous sermon in the world, Jesus' words that have transformed lives and societies for the last 2,000 years. And here we are today studying them as the Holy Spirit, living and active, works through the word of God. So we come to Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We kicked off last week, and Jesus opened his mouth and he spoke to the crowds. And the first word, if you were here last week, you might remember, stunned the crowds that he used this word first as he opened his mouth. What was that word? Blessed, I heard it out there. Blessed, which we saw was the Greek word makarios, which means happy. He's talking about happiness, something that all of our souls crave. We crave happiness. And he taught us through the eight Beatitudes how to have true happiness. First of all, how to become spiritually alive. And then the second set of four Beatitudes, how to have the abundant life that Jesus wants us to have as his salt and light in the world. Now today, as we make it to chapter 5, verse 17, we're going to make it through the entire rest of chapter 5 today. That's right, we're going to do it. Verses 17 through 48. And as we go today, the theme that we're going to see today is that Jesus wants us to get is that living a, a, the Christianity, true Christianity, following Jesus truly, is a road with two big ditches, one on each side. On one side is legalism, and on the other side is license. Legalism is our works-based, the approach that we have to earn favor, to, feel, to earn a feeling that good about ourselves, to earn our way to God by being good enough, 
And praise God, Jesus teaches us that that's impossible. There's no way a good enough is impossible to meet a holy God's expectation. But he gave us Jesus, and we're going to talk about that today. Also, as a legalist, we make my opinion a burden on everyone else, and we condemn everyone else who doesn't have my own opinion. One writer described it, legalism has no pity. Legalism makes my opinion your burden, makes my opinion your boundary, makes my opinion your obligation. Legalism destroys, but it is the human default system. It's in all of our hearts. It's how we're wired. It's all of ours. Legalism. We earn and condemn and judge other people. Now, ditch two is license. This is on the other side. This is thinking that freedom in Christ, because I have freedom in Christ, I've been set free, now I can do whatever I want. And that is also not true. And we fall into either of those ditches all the time, all of us do. And people in each of these ditches tend to fight with the people in the other ditch. It's just reality. But in the middle is love, love for God and love for others. True, love, following Jesus is right here and walks the middle between both of those ditches. In our text today, Jesus teaches the ditches dangers and that his way is a better way. Kingdom come is better life than anything else. The first four verses we come to now are the key, interestingly, to the rest of the whole Sermon on the Mount, all the way through the end of chapter 7. These first four verses that we come to today, verses 17 through 20, are the key. And they are shocking. Imagine if you were in the crowd that day, you would be shocked by Jesus' words and points in these verses. So that's what we come to point one, is the shocking subject of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus establishes right now. He says something in verse 17, clarifying something very important. And we need to hear this and know this. He says, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. We think, well, the Old Testament law is not for us anymore. But it is. Jesus has not abolished it. He came to fulfill it. So what's the difference? Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament like as if God's law is not relevant anymore. God's laws in the Old Testament, his natural laws of the world are extremely relevant to every part of our lives. But what he did when he came was to fulfill it. That means bring it to its intended completion. What it previewed and forecasted in all the law and the prophets, his way of saying all the Old Testament It was all pointed to him, and he came to fulfill it all and give us a new way to live. And fulfillment that Jesus had in mind had neither legalism, where we have to earn everything by keeping the law externally, and it didn't have anything to do with we've been set free, now we can do whatever we want. We're our own gods. We're not accountable. We can do whatever. Neither of those is God's fulfillment of the law. So, the fulfillment Jesus has in mind is what the Old Testament law was calling for all along. And we have to get this. This was always embedded in the Old Testament law. Look at Deuteronomy, back in the law, chapter 30, verse 6. It says, it's plain as can be, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. This is what the law was calling for all along, was a heart that's alive to God. Here it is, and the Lord will circumcise your heart, it will give you a new heart, 
and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. There's our, one of our key words. Living, abundant life, better life. The law leads to that. Now, what Jesus says next in verse 20, this is what shocks his hearers. I mean, it just blows them away. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, whoa. Just picture that you're in the crowds and you hear that. I mean, this is what keeps me from being in bondage to sin and the kingdom of darkness or being brought into the kingdom of light, God's kingdom, is I have to perform more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees? That sounds pretty hopeless. I mean, these people in the the crowds were trained from the very beginning. This was part of their culture. You respect and revere the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the ones who know the law better than anyone. They're the ones who've given their lives to keep all the laws of God. There's no way that you're going to outperform them. But that's what Jesus says. You can't get into the kingdom unless you do exceed them, outperform them in the law. Wow. So these scribes and Pharisees, they were the ones who kept the law better than anyone else. Or did they? See, God has an advantage. He knows their hearts, and he knows your hearts. He knows our hearts. Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew that their hearts, as much as they kept the law on the outside by appearances, their hearts were far from God. When we return to to finish our entire series through the book of Matthew, after Christmas, we'll return to Matthew chapter 23. And in that chapter, see what we have. This is a little preview. This is how Jesus describes the righteousness of these dangerous hypocrites the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 27 and 28, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. They've been washed and painted, outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. He knows your heart. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were dangerous, Because they were the leaders, and people followed them, and they led people, and their hearts were not set on God, but entirely on themselves. So what is the shocking subject of the Sermon on the Mount then? Well, it is again what verse 20 says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How can we do better than the Pharisees who by all appearances, everybody saw them doing all the works of the law, how can we possibly perform better than the Pharisees. Here's how Jesus is teaching, by openly and honestly checking the spiritual condition of your heart. The Pharisees were proud of their efforts, and they could never admit that they were poor in spirit. Remember, that was the first beatitude that starts new life in Christ at all. You have to be humble before God, poor in spirit. They could never do that. Their outward actions covered up their spiritual poverty and pride. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Unless we confess our sins and our need to God. Not we do things to say, look how good I am. But our true heart for God, for following Jesus our Savior, Lord, Master, and Friend is making Him look beautiful in the way that we sacrificially choose to live. 
This is salvation. This is the gospel. This is the, the gospel that Jesus brought. And any other gospel is a false gospel. Any, anybody who says you have to earn your way to God is a false gospel. It's all by God's grace alone, through our faith alone. And because of our gratitude for that, we have a new way to live. And this is where we're going from here on out today. How, first of all, how can you know that you actually have this true heart for God? Let's be honest and let's be uh, comforted. We won't be perfect overnight. Amen? We're not going to be perfect overnight. But you'll know that you have this heart for God, that you have trusted Jesus for real, repented of your sins, and been brought to life in him, if you have some new desires in your life that you never had before, a desire to actually follow Jesus, a desire to start rejecting those sins that you've always turned to. It's like, I, I, I want to turn away from those. Now, sometimes we'll slide back in them because they've been our habit and our treatment our defense mechanisms or whatever that is. But we'll have a desire to live a new life, the new nature in us. And that's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. That's what we're in for this fall, starting today, beginning with the rest of chapter 5, which we're going to go all the way through right now. As we enter point 2, Jesus, now in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, now gives six areas for better living in Jesus. What he's going to do, he, he drops that bomb and he, he gives this point, this key to the Sermon on the Mount, and now he's going to follow that with six examples. Six examples. Jesus demands that we live in a way that honors him so that we can avoid all the pain and destruction that sin creates. And he's going to give us six mic-dropping teachings. Have you ever heard that? Mic-dropping teachings. He's, he's going to drop them. He's going to say six things. People are going to be stunned. I asked Tristan if we had an old microphone that I could do that. He said, no. But I remember that my Agnes has this one from the Dollar Tree. So Jesus is going to say, you know, are you familiar with that expression? I, I remember when that first became a thing. Somebody, he said, somebody says something that's just so incredible, he dropped the mic. All right, you've, you've probably heard that or seen that. Jesus is going to do that six times right now. Six mic drop dropping teachings. Six times Jesus will begin with a teaching from the Old Testament that the Pharisees had been misinterpreting and training other people to follow their wrong twisting, twistings of Scripture. And then Jesus will give the correct interpretation to improve our thinking and to improve the way we live today. Each of these six could be its own sermon, all right? I want you to understand that. And they have been, some of them. But today, we're not going to spend uh, 30 minutes on all six of them each. Our focus today is on avoiding the two ditches. What are they? Legalism. We're going to avoid that with our lives. And then license, that we can do anything we want, that we're free to sin. No, following Christ is the walk of love and grace and truth in the middle. Jesus' kingdom life is the better life. In all ways. But here are six big ones to get us well on our way today. The first is anger. Anger, which is in Christ's eyes as bad as murder. Do you think anger is a problem in our world today? <laughs> yeah. A U.S. News and World Report survey said... Nine out of ten Americans feel their country's incivility is a serious problem. And, either, and nearly half of that said an extremely serious problem. 
How interesting that Jesus chose this topic for the first to focus on in living a kingdom life, a better life. It's always been an issue, and it is today. And I'll be honest, one of my surprises in my time of being a pastor is just seeing how prevalent this very struggle is in our society and even in churches. It's such a common struggle. And it seems like that's embedded in our culture right from the very get-go and all the time. It's embedded early in so many family dynamics these days. It's right embedded in that. In our schools, there's so much anger. In our media, so much anger. In our cultural values, which claim my rights over everything else. And the devil has a field day tapping into all of these, by the way. And so we struggle with anger big time. Let's really stop and hear Jesus on anger. Verses 21 and 22, this is his first of the examples. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's the courtroom of God. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, this is the misinterpretation that was going on in that day. That murder, okay, what murder is, is the unjust taking of someone's life. It's one of the Ten Commandments. To a godly person or Christ follower, it is unthinkable. But Jesus catches them off guard because they're thinking, well, I've never murdered anybody, so I'm all good. That's the misinterpretation. Jesus says, but I say to you, and here's his true interpretation. You may think, I've never committed murder, so I'm good with God. But in God's court, anger is equally condemning in God's court, and everyone is guilty. That's why we need Jesus. But listen, Jesus wants your attention here. If you've been saved by Jesus, he says there's a new way to live now. Stop acting on your anger immediately and completely. In contrast to anger and poisonous words that damage relationships and damage our testimony and our witness to the world, Jesus gives a better way, and that better way is reconciliation. He says in verses 23 and 24, he instructs, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And Brothers and sisters, if we are harboring any kind of bitter feelings, which happens all the time, any kind of bitter feelings toward a brother or sister, God doesn't even want your offering of praise or your offering of service or your offering of ministry until you've gone and reconciled that. To the best of your ability, it still depends on other people to a large extent. But until you've taken care of your part, and that's because our attitude towards others impacts our relationship with God. Will you repent of this today to God And come to your brother or sister and make it right. Now, there's a lot of complexities in in those. And if you need help, if you need counsel, the church is here. Your small group leaders are here. Your mentors are here. 
open God's word and we'll figure out in your specific scenario how to address it. We will. We'll walk with you through that. But that's the way we live as Christ followers. In verse 27, Jesus then drops vivid example number two, and that is that lust is the same as adultery. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. Right after that, people are already stunned with the anger thing. Mike's been dropped. He does it again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is another one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. This is, that is being sexually active with someone who is not your spouse. Now, the misinterpretation of that, again, is as long as we haven't done that, then we can do whatever we want otherwise, and we're good with God. Wrong. Wrong again. Jesus' true interpretation is this. First of all, let's make sure everybody knows what lust is. I still remember the first, I had to understand what that word is. Simply unrestrained, unrestrained sexual desire. Like we all feel, we're all wired to feel desire. It's when you camp out and obsess and misuse and mistreat and are not faithful to your spouse. That's when it becomes sin. That's when it crosses the line, when we do those, those things. So, God looks at our minds, and he sees clearly, and he sees a whole lot of unholiness in there. Amen? <laughs> he does. It's there. You're not alone if you think you're the only one. It's everybody. We crave unholy things. And to underscore the seriousness of not restraining your sexual desire, Jesus causes the mic to drop yet again in the next verses, 29 and 30. He said, this is so important. I see the unholiness in there, and you are condemned without Jesus because of it. That's why we need Jesus. But here's, we got the grace of the gospel of Jesus, but here's where we have to respond. Here's how serious it is. Verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. God created sex and sexual desire to be good, to be sanctifying a holy, intimate act in marriage. And any violation of that, Jesus teaches, he's raising the bar here, even in the mind is worthy of eternal hell. That's any sin in the face of a holy God. Without Jesus, we are all in big trouble. Amen. Amen. Now, but we have Jesus. He's teaching us how to live. He's good. Men are typically drawn into lust visually, staring at screens or staring at other people as objects of gratification. And that's a constant battle for the vast majority of men. Women are typically drawn into lust more by fantasy, books, television, imagination, those kind of things. God's way is absolute purity. That's his better way, purity. Why is purity better? Because God knows this about getting caught in sins. The Bible has so much to say about it, but here's a meme that helps us picture it. Sometimes pictures are helpful. He knows what sin promises 
and what sin delivers. And he's out to spare you from this, the effects of sin. Oh, read the first six chapters of Proverbs. It says it so clearly and eloquently. We get caught up in areas of sin in our own minds. He sees it and it's condemned. His better way is purity. And we've got the gospel of his power and grace and the call to obey and follow him for better life. So men, that's why we're offering another round of the Conquer series. It's an incredible 10-week journey to establish a battle plan for purity in your lives. And I can't recommend it highly enough. It starts on Thursday nights, October 13th. And and that's why we have a a little preview dinner on on Thursday night at Matt Anthony's in the back room. This Thursday night, ages 13 and up, guys come. Women, you need to be open to a mature, trusted mentor, leader in your life with your struggles. They're particular, unique, but you can receive loving accountability and discipleship, open the word, and be encouraged as we live a pure life before God. And that's the better life. The better life. Well, let's move on. Jesus' third example is a hot topic, but it's a vital one to live and follow Christ. That is that divorce equals adultery. Let's see what Jesus says. Verses 31 and 32. Third time he says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give him a certificate, give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that every One who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right. The misinterpretation. Once again, the Pharisees had twisted God's law to treat women like property. That was never God's intention. And then to allow men to divorce them for anything, anything. Like burning the bread, the dinner bread, was a legitimate reason to divorce the wives. That was what it had become. You know, that's a really terrible environment for healthy marriages. Amen? Okay. The true interpretation by Jesus, Jesus proclaimed God's, that God's position on marriage is on the entire other end of the spectrum. Okay, the, the sanctity of the covenant of marriage that unites two that become one, reflects God's character, reflects Christ's love and and covenant with the church. And anyone who divorces and then shacks up with another commits adultery, which we saw adultery leads to hell. We need Jesus. So the better way to live is the word covenantal. That is honoring your marriage as an unbreakable covenant that you treasure, even if it's hard, that you treasure like Christ treasures the church rather than treating it as a contract that can be broken if it doesn't suit you. That's what marriage is. That's the meaning of marriage, covenantal. Now, two important clarifications need to be made at this point about divorce. First of all, if you have been divorced and remarried, You should not understand that your new marriage is to be living in perpetual adultery. That's a misunderstanding. If you confess any original sin that you have, you are completely forgiven. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. And now you need to honor this marriage covenant completely. God is a forward-looking God. And he's died for the past. 
We're going forward. Now, number two, clarification is Jesus does give one allowance for divorce, which is the spouse committing adultery on you. There's a lot of study on that. Basically, it boils down to this, and that is because they, if this is true of them, have essentially already divorced you as they've connected that way with someone else. Now, they may be repentant, and the Bible makes clear that God's preference would always be reconciliation if possible. But the point is, we're avoiding legalism, and we're avoiding, avoiding licenses if we can do whatever we want. And we're living Jesus' better way. Jesus' fourth example of better kingdom living is, is one of the first skills that we learn by ourselves. No teachers are needed for this one. We have a natural talent at it. Just as we begin to learn how to talk, we lie. This is the fifth, fourth example. False oaths, swearing oaths, or lying is evil. All right, so this is where we have to put our imaginations back, back to this crowd 2,000 years ago. What was happening at that time? Swearing oaths had become a big problem because they weren't trustworthy. So what the Pharisees, you read about this in history, the Pharisees had created this elaborate system of swearing oaths, and it had scales, like, if I swore to God, Jehovah, Yahweh, uh, his name, that would be the highest thing. But if I swore to the temple, that would be a little lower. Swore to the temple's treasury, that would be a little lower. To the hair on my head would be even lower. And the Pharisees had manipulated this system of oaths like, well, depending on what I swear by, I don't need to keep my word. I'll just do whatever's beneficial for me. And that's because they were the leaders. People were following them, and that's become, that's become the culture. And so Jesus addresses that. Here he goes in verses 33 and 34. That is not the kingdom way to live. My followers, he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Don't swear at all. Don't swear by heaven, by Jerusalem, by your head, by anything else he lists there. What was Jesus' concern? Again, the religious leaders had, had corrupted this whole system, giving themselves loopholes that they could lie and they could deceive and benefit themselves. And Jesus wasn't having any of that, and he doesn't want to have that among his people. So the true interpretation by Jesus is what was really meant by the Old Testament law all along was that it's better to have integrity. Jesus says, be honest. All the time, all the time. In our speech, in things we say all the time, and we have no need to swear or have an oath at all. Now, many of us have had a friend, and you might remember a friend like this, who always used to say, I swear to God, I swear to God, it's true. I swear to God, I did that. You know somebody like that? Usually they said that when they were lying, of course. <laughs> this is what Jesus is saying. Verse 37, here's the way. Just let your, what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And that's because you're always telling the truth. You don't need to say, I swear and make an oath and all these things. You always tell the truth. You have integrity, honesty. That's following Jesus. That's the better way to life. And you can sleep much better at night when you just wipe out lying completely, can't you? You don't have to keep up track with all the lies. You don't have to carry guilt. Just always be honest. Society thrives. Because you're living the better life following Jesus. Number five, Jesus' fifth example of better kingdom living regards revenge and retaliation 
Those things are simply pride. That's it. Prideful. Now, the law Jesus brings up here is called the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. The lex talionis, the law of retaliation, has helped societies function healthily for thousands of years. It started in the Old Testament, and you'll see he quotes it in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this is an important law, and used in God's way, it helped serve two important purposes for society. First of all, it prevented crimes because people saw the punishment of their crimes, and it was a deterrent. I'm not going to commit that crime. But also, too, it kept, uh, it avoided excessive punishment, which would often happen. Oh, you offended me, so I'm going to really punish you in return. But it kept excessive punishment out, too. So that's an important law, but again, it has been misinterpreted, twisted. The religious leaders twisted this law, and they used it as permission to get personal revenge on anything. I get my personal revenge in claiming that I get that permission from God. And people followed them, and it became the norm. And Jesus said, ah, no more. Now, we do this too. We convince ourselves that we have the right to be angry and get back at someone. We do this all the time. We don't. We willingly lay that before Jesus' throne, his feet. We give up that right. Jesus says we don't. Jesus' true interpretation is that Jesus forbids retaliation, period. He says this, plain as can be in verse 39, and then gives four examples. He says in verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And then he gives four examples. But here's how to live, my people. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, and again, here's what was happening culturally there. They were under the dominating uh, occupation of the Roman Empire. And so any Roman soldier could tell any regular person, you have to carry my pack one mile. And there were mile markers. And you had to do it. That was Roman law. You could be thrown in jail if you didn't. He said, now you... You hate the Romans. They're going to make you walk a mile? Walk two. And blow them away. Following Christ. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, these samples teach that God's word, you've got to compare it with all the rest of Scripture. God's, God's people are to work for justice. And that, those, things, those samples raise all kinds of questions. Well, how about... How about personal defense and those kind of, and the Bible teaches personal defense. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about, we work for justice, but not take personal revenge. There it is. God's kingdom better way. What is better? The better way here is generous grace. Remember what grace is. It is undeserved favor. But Pastor Reg, there are some people who are just not worthy of my grace. They don't deserve it. Exactly. That's what grace is. It's undeserved favor, and we're going to give it anyway. The way the natural world works is to claim my rights, get the revenge, get back at them. But Jesus is righteous, and he calls us to live that way as well. So all of these examples so far, 
crescendo up to the sixth and final example. This is the peak. This is the highest sphere where law meets love. Law, you have to do something. You have to do an external behavior, and it's going to be hard. But where love and grace, this is where they combine the most powerfully right here. Example number six is to love your enemies. The way I phrase it here is if you love your neighbor only, that's non-Christian. That's not following Christ. That's living as an unbeliever, dominated and ruled by Satan in the flesh. Here's the misinterpretation. Verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, listen, people, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's Jesus' way. Now, interestingly here, this phrase, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, all the other phrases, they had been distorting words from the actual law of God in the Old Testament. This one was never in the Old Testament. These words, were that was never one of God's law. You can't find love your neighbor and hate your enemy ever anywhere in Scripture. In fact, much the opposite. I could give a whole long list of Old Testament law scriptures about loving and caring for and rescuing and helping and building up your enemies. So they didn't twist an Old Testament scripture. They just made something up, but it was popular. It was a popular saying, like a slogan, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The Pharisees made this one up, but people want to follow this one. People want to hate our enemies. I know that's all of us. It's not Jesus' way. Jesus' true interpretation here is that we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Why? Why is that? He answers that right here in the next words, verses 45 through 47. So that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's not a sacrifice. Do not even the tax collectors do this? That's the worst sinners. They do that. And if you greet only your brothers and you kind of ignore anyone else that you don't like, what, what more are you doing than anyone else? Don't even the Gentiles do the same, not the people of God? Yeah, we're friendly to people who are friendly to us. No, we must love our enemies because it is Godlike. This is how God treats us when we oppose him. That's why. And we oppose him every time we sin. And he knows every thought in our mind. And he loves us just the same. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Now, as we improve on that and actually can do this, this is a mark that we are indeed growing in maturity in Christ. It's a good thing. Just think right now of forgiving and loving your enemies. <laughs> you pick, go ahead and picture them. You know, this is more than hard. It is impossible, it is ridiculous, and it is unexplainable if you ever can pull it off, which is exactly what Jesus has in mind. It's supernatural. This is, again, where the external code of conduct, the things that we do, meets law and grace. But look at what Jesus concludes with in verse 48. This is where the power comes from. This is what Jesus has in mind as he concludes all of this. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So better than this is perfection. Now you might say, oh, that's all? (laughs) But Pastor Reg, this seems like a really bad ending to all of this good stuff because Jesus says, what Jesus says to do is impossible for me. So isn't it kind of defeating to give me an unrealistic, impossible demand at the end of all this? I shouldn't even try. And no, we really have to dig into this verse to understand what the wording is and what Jesus' point is. This again, I'm going to say it again, is where Jesus' glorious grace and our hard work to be like him where they meet. Because the depth of love and righteousness and discernment and holiness that Jesus demands of us is definitely impossible. we got to grasp that. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot perform that well. We're hopeless. There's no, there's no way to be good enough. But the great truth is we Christians are not left alone. Jesus saved us. God clothes us in his righteousness and sees us as pure and perfect as he sees his son. Then the Holy Spirit empowers us for this journey to improve and grow in all of these ways. And inexhaustible grace every time we fail and confess. And then we're rebuilt and restored. We've been given the path to a better life here and now and kingdom life for all eternity. And all of the power of, of the word and the wisdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. He set us up for success. And you have to understand that, that word perfect, and I, and I want you all to grasp this if you study the Greek and everything, that perfect does not mean perfect execution because that would be impossible indeed. The sense of this word perfect is reaching the completion of, of the maturity goal. It's been perfect. It's been totally matured. So that's what we're shooting for. That's in our church's vision statement. Number two is to... Mature as family, that's it. That's what we do. That's the road we're on, and it's a beautiful thing. Just always remember, it's not by legalism. It's not by license to sin, whatever we want. Jesus' glorious grace with our hard efforts to work, they meet, we become like Jesus. We live victoriously, and we give a sweet, powerful testimony to the world of the power and truth of Jesus. Here are some next steps to get us there. Here's what we're going to do today. The first thing I want to ask, and never assume in any group that everyone has fully repented of of really setting yourself on the throne as God. Like you're it. No, Jesus says repent, turn from that, and put me on the throne. Ask me for salvation and forgiveness, and you got it. And you've got all this. He's proven it on the cross and the resurrection. So the question I want to ask everybody here is, do I see... Uh, that I want you to ask yourself, do I see the Holy Spirit growing all of these new attitudes in my life? As we've gone through those six powerful examples, do you see that happening in your life? Like God is really working on me to love my enemies and and all the rest and and to fight my lust and and everything else. If not, Paul says to examine, the Apostle Paul says to examine yourselves to see if you are even in the faith. Have you really trusted Jesus and been given the Holy Spirit? If not, this can be the day of your salvation. If you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, you don't have the Spirit. Yeah, that's a sign, and you can call on Jesus today, and he will save you. I'm going to call on the worship team to come on up right now as we prepare to close. And for the next next step, I'm going to lead us all in a corporate prayer because when the church prays together, powerful things happen. Throughout the book of Acts, all the New Testament, all of church history. So we're going to do that right now. I'm going to pray a prayer of commitment. I'm going to read this out loud. 
for you to just pray to God in your minds, in your own relationship with God. You don't have to say it out loud. But we're going to commit these areas, all of these areas of life, to our glorious King Jesus. Um, so Tristan, go ahead and start playing. Can I ask everybody to stand now? You're going to see them on the screen. This is an opportunity for you personally to commit all these things. We're going to go over these six things that Jesus covered today and to do it as a church. This is sweet because we are in this together. If you can't and it's not, you're not supposed to even try to do this on your own. We're here in it together. So we're going to pray this individually, and I am too, but also as a church family. All right. You just pray in your own mind and heart to God. I'm going to say, Lord, we, first of all, confess our sins. Confess our sins to you. Confess our sins to one another. We acknowledge that we keep sinning and we're thankful for your grace. We acknowledge our dependence on your Holy Spirit if we're going to have a chance at living the way you want us to live. But in his power, we pray this prayer of commitment. Number one, we will reconcile with everyone. Now, this is hard and God, if, if there's help needed, counsel, assistance, I pray that we'll seek it and get it. This will require overcoming anger. But this is our commitment to you that we'll take the next steps. Show us what we need to do. Number two, we will close all doors to lust. Like God told Cain in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at your door seeking to have you. And so if there's any of us that have any doors cracked open to lust at all, that we will close them. Men, you can come to the dinner this Thursday and sign up for the Conquer series to work on that very thing. Everybody, commit that to God, though. Take care of that, those open doors today. Number three, we will be fully committed to loving and respecting our spouse, my spouse. Fully committed to loving and respecting my spouse starting now. I'm going to make it right. Singles, do this right now with your future spouse in mind. With your future spouse. Or if you are going to remain single, to Jesus who fills in that place of your perfect partner. We're going to be fully committed to loving and respecting our spouse. Number four, we will be people of integrity and honesty that everyone can absolutely trust our word. That we will never lie and never cheat and confess quickly if I do. We pray that prayer to you, God. And Number five, we will surrender our desire for revenge against, now you fill in the blank. Go ahead and just think of their names or their faces and surrender it. I'm going to surrender my desire for revenge against them. Commit this to King Jesus and enjoy the freedom, knowing that he says, you've let it go and experience freedom. Sleep well at night. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's for him. It's not for us. So we surrender that. Number six, the peak of it all, we will love our enemies because that's what God does for us and pray for those who persecute us. And these are our commitments as a church family to keep us each other accountable and to see what you will do. Give us eyes to see what you will do through us. In Jesus' powerful name and glorious name that we depend on, we pray. Amen.